Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Amy Harbin, author of Fearing Together, published by Oxford University Press in April 2023. In Fearing Together, Amy synthesizes insight from philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, political theory, and mindfulness research to claim that fearing is something we do better together. Fearing is a central part of how we relate to each other and the unpredictable world. We might think that fearing is undesirable and should be avoided whenever possible, but perhaps avoiding fear causes some of our greatest threats. Fearing well is at the core of what it means to be responsible. By understanding fear as a relational practice, we can see that our relationships with other fearers shape what we fear, what fear feels like, and how we identify and understand our fears and how we cope with them. Amy Harbin is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Women and Gender Studies at Oakland University in Detroit, Michigan. Amy, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much, Jen. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get started, could you share a little bit with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your work in philosophy and gender studies? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, So I grew up in Canada, on the west coast of Canada. And when I started university, I moved to Edmonton, Alberta, which is in the prairies. And then I just moved east, east, east until I finally completed my PhD at Dalhousie University in Halifax in Nova Scotia. And then I started my position here, as you mentioned, in uh, Michigan in 2012. Um, In terms of what brought me to philosophy and gender studies, I actually started as a theology major, little known fact, Um, and it was really reading Friedrich Nietzsche at the time of my first year of university that made me convert to philosophy. Um, Feminist philosophy came a bit later in my undergrad. Uh, I took a course and I read some theorists whose work I still really draw on now, um, Sarah Ahmed and Judith Butler, Um, and so and, you know, from there sort of became committed to feminist philosophy. Amazing. Thanks. Uh, so turning now to this new book, Fearing Together, could you speak about how you came to this project and what some of some of your big goals were for this book? For sure. So I started writing this book in 2016. Um, And I concluded writing it in 2022. And so as most of us know, in the US context, those were some brutal years. Um, When I started writing the book, you know, shortly after that, the Brexit referendum occurred. By fall of 2016, Donald Trump had been elected in the US. And then we've had six years of what I would describe as pretty well nonstop um, crises in this country, in this continent, and also around the world. Um, So I think it's a widely shared feeling that we're living in a time of great fear, right? Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, we were seeing migrant migrant detention camps, police shootings, school shootings, really just an incredible amount of violence and harm. Um, So while I don't think that fear is unique to our times, I think it's pretty undeniable that it is looming. And so when I was first looking as a philosopher for writing on fear, I discovered that there's 
a real necessity of making the search more interdisciplinary, right? Within and beyond philosophy, theorists have urged a number of things. Basically, what I found is that some theorists are out there saying, you know, fear is really bad and people need to fear less. Other theorists are out there saying, you know, people should fear, but we should fear different things than we're fearing um, because a fearful population is really easily manipulated. And so there's a lot of work on fear, but most of it is trying to um, identify what's wrong with fearing and provide correctives. And so all of these um, these responses to thinking about fearing within, in philo within philosophy, but also outside philosophy, I thought weren't getting it quite right. And so I was trying in this book to change the conversation. Basically, my goal has been to move beyond these suggestions that we should be fearing differently, um, trying to come to the point of accepting that fears exist and seeing them as actually an important part of moral life. Um, so basically, the book really is doing two things. First, trying to um, suggest that while we might think that fearing is undesirable and we should avoid fears, in fact, avoiding fear is actually the bigger problem. Avoiding fear is what causes some of our greatest threats. And then second, usually we tend to think of fearing as something that we as individuals do by ourselves, but a big you know, focus of the book is trying to move towards thinking of fearing as something that we do relationally. We do it with other people. It's all the time shaped by things that other people are doing with us. So the TLDR is really like, I think fearing is a big part of ethical lives. I don't think running away from fear is the way to move forward. I think there are ways that we can fear better. Um, and whatever those ways are, we're going to have to figure them out together. Super. Um, so let's talk through um, the work that you do in this book. In the first chapter, you start off by asking how we come to fear the things we do. What have you learned about how we arrive at what we're afraid of? And why is it important to have a relational understanding of fearing as our foundation for thinking about fear? Exactly. So the book starts with the, the first chapter is called, um, what do we fear? This is a question, actually. I'm trying to remember what the first chapter is called. The first chapter is all about, as you say, fear acquisition. So this is a technical term in the literature that's about how we come to fear what we do. And what I talk about in the first chapter is that basically we have this underlying set of two assumptions about how we come to our fears. And then I go about trying to like disabuse us of those, those two ideas. So first, I think many of us tend to assume that if I fear something, it's because it's an actual threat. And so we assume that when I'm experiencing fear of something, that is cueing us to the fact that that's a threat and we should actually be afraid of it. And then the second assumption I think many of us have is that the fears we have are ones that we've come to by ourselves, the ones that we've acquired independently. So my fears are my own. Um, they belong to me, right? My fears are kind of uniquely personal to me. And so then, as I said, I'm trying to challenge both of these assumptions at the start of the book. So to challenge that first assumption, right, the idea that when I fear something, it's because it's an actual threat, I, I engage the what's called the risk perception literature, which is this huge literature in empirical psychology, um, which shows that actually, you know, in many cases, we fear things that are not actual threats. 
And this probably, if you think about it for a minute, won't be surprising, right? Many of us can think of examples of fearing something that doesn't turn out to be an actual threat. So while we assume that often processes of fearing go like we observe something and we come to fear it, and that was an actual threat. So maybe, for example, I might assume that, you know, I observe a wasp in my backyard. I feel fear of the wasp. The wasp is an actual threat, right? We think that that's kind of standardly how it goes. In fact, an individual might perceive an object as a threat without that object being an actual threat. So maybe the wasp isn't in fact an actual threat. Um, Maybe I perceive someone on the street as a threat when in fact, they're no threat at all to me. So another way to put this point is it's clear that some perceptions of risk are not reflective of actual risk, right? Or perceptions of threat might not be indicative of actual threat. So that's the first piece. Um, Where do our fears come from? Well, they're not always reflecting actual threats in the world. Um, We can't take them to be obviously reflecting actual threats. And then the second presumption, that idea that the fears we get belong to us as individuals, we come to them individualistically, I draw on a bunch of literature and developmental psychology um, to highlight how we learn what to perceive as a threat in large part by seeing what other people fear. So there's this super interesting, very large literature on you know how we actually come to the perceptions of the world that we have when we're especially young children. And what we notice as salient, what we come to think is important in the world is largely learned from watching what caregivers think is important, right? So we don't come to think of all the walls around us and the paint on the walls is important because our caregivers don't focus a lot on that. They do focus on the animal in the book that they're reading to us over and over again, right? And so we do come to think of that as important. The same goes with fear. What our caregivers notice as fearful Um, has a huge effect on what we ourselves will notice as fearful. And there are really interesting empirical uh, studies here, for example, focusing on mothers during war times who came to, you know, cue to the sound of sirens as being especially salient and and fear-inducing, and their children coming to, to do the same, even when they were living much later in a time when sirens weren't so prevalent. So it... It's all this to say, you know, both in our early years and also as we go on, grow up, become adults, our fears and what we come to fear um, is is deeply structured by what other people come to fear. And even as adults, long out of you know childhood, what trusted others fear is something that I'm much more likely to fear, right? If a trusted other person fears something like, for example, vaccines. I, in a relationship with them, might become more likely to fear vaccines as well. And of course, myself speaking as someone who's very pro-vaccine, this is concerning, right? We get we get the fears that we get in part by the relationships that we have with other people. So this is the basic structure of the first chapter. I'm challenging both of these presumptions. First, showing that perceived threats are not actual threats. And then second, showing that fears are ones that we acquire relationally. Thank you for that really, really clear um, explanation and really helpful examples. Um, And so then moving from that um, kind of like how chapter, your second chapter asks what fearing is. And here um, I saw you exploring both philosophy and neuroscience. So what do those two disciplines show us about the roots of fear? And then could you also talk about how you've tried to shift individualized understanding 
understandings of fearing towards an idea of fearing with others? For sure. So on the philosophy side, um, the second chapter engages philosophers of emotion. And a lot of this was happening, you know, there's still many of philosophers of emotion. Now I consider myself to be one of them. But there were there was a lot written in the 1980s and early 90s in philosophy of emotion. Um, and a lot of philosophers of emotion were very focused on this kind of technical distinction between causes and objects of emotion where the idea is that causes of emotion are the thing that actually triggers us to feel something and objects of the emotion are the thing that we're feeling that towards. So in the case of fear, the cause of a fear is, is the thing that actually triggered us to feel fear. And the object of fear is the thing that we are fearing. <clears throat> so philosophers can sometimes be very uncreative. So some of the examples they like to use are like a snake, right? You encounter a snake on the ground. That is both the cause and the object of your fear. It, the snake made you fearful. And what are you fearing? The snake, right? But these philosophers um, got into a lot of, of cases where they were trying to talk about when these come apart and actually when we are not very reliable judges as humans of which are the causes and objects of our emotions. So one example that's given is of, um, well, that I take and I sort of change a little bit, an example uh, for Robert Solomon about um, a case where I see something as fearful, but in fact, the cause of my fearfulness is an underlying psychological state of my own because I drank too much coffee that morning. I didn't have enough sleep the night before. And basically I'm jumpy, right? And more anxious than I would otherwise be. So I've modified this example a bit to consider this kind of case where, you know, imagine I see someone walking behind me on the street. I can see that they're coming up behind me. I fear that they might take something of mine, right? They might try to grab my backpack. And what I'm thinking is that the cause of my fear is that person and the object of my fear is that person. But really what's going on is that I'm hypervigilant because I didn't sleep well and I've had too much coffee. Um, I saw something you know, scary on TV the night before. And so I'm in this jumpy state. That's actually the cause of my feeling of fear. And the object of my fear is you know, the person coming up behind me. Turns out they're not a threat to me at all, but I perceive them as a threat. Why this is important is because actually in our real lives, I'm, you know, I'm worried about cases where we think we know the cause of our fear, right? Maybe we think the cause of our fear is, um, you know, take the vaccine case again, is, is dangerous chemicals and vaccines that might threaten to hurt our children. We think that's the cause and the object of our fear when actually the cause of our fear might be something else like, you know, um, a desire to protect our children from harms at all costs. Really, the 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 vaccines themselves are not going to be harmful, but we have this this uh, desire to protect our children, and so the cause of our fear is actually this greater feeling of threat. Um, so all of this to say, the cause and the object of fear, which philosophers love to get all technical about, it's interesting because these things can be different, and we can be wrong about both right? We as individual fearers are very fallible. We might be wrong about both. That's the philosophy piece. The neuroscience piece, um, here I get into the literature uh, on the physiological and the neurological dimensions of threat detection. So people might know the work of Joseph Ledoux, who's written a, a ton in neuroscience of fear um, and in recent years has focused a lot on threat detection. 
So there's a very interesting literature on how um, being in a state of threat detection, right? Seeing things that are that are perceived threats for us can shape other cognitive processes in really serious ways. It changes what we see, right? Being fearful actually means that you see different stuff. It can enhance, but also um, detract from information processing. It can increase motivation to learn um, and it can increase the likelihood to perceive risk. So basically, and again, anyone who's felt fear, this might not be that surprising, when you are fearful, you are more likely to perceive things as threats, um, even things that you otherwise would not perceive as threats. So all of this literature is really interesting for thinking about um, what fearing is. Basically, fear is in part a, a shaping of cognitive processes that can make us interact with the world in really different ways. So the last thing I'll say here is that, you know, I draw on those philosophers from the 80s and this neuroscience um, which is largely, you know, 90s up until now. And while both of these camps, both the cause object people and the neuroscience people tend to focus on individuals, again, individual fearers as the, as the site of all of this stuff happening. I also uh, bring in the work of a dear mentor of mine um, named Sue Campbell, who wrote a really wonderful book called Interpreting the Personal back in 1997, where she argues that, you know, basically to have feelings, to form feelings, including feelings of fear, we are very often more dependent on other people than we would think. And so she gives lots of interesting examples where like, even to have the feeling, you need to be able to express the feeling to someone else and have it sympathetically interpreted. And there are really interesting cases where like, if I have a feeling and I say it to you and you dismiss the feeling and don't take it seriously or suggest that I'm actually feeling something else, I might not come to have that feeling in the same way. So being dismissed can be um, destructive of the actual feeling itself. I might not come to have it. So I try to use Campbell's work to talk about how other people can play key roles um, in allowing us to form fears. That's a really impressive like amount of, of research that you have dug into and brought together um, in this conversation about, about fear. Um, and so then... Moving on to the third chapter, this is uh, where you started talking about the ways that fears are displaced to proxies. Uh, and you also described here how this is a relational process. Could you speak a little about the psychoanalytic understandings of displacement of fear and why you think that a relational understanding of how proxies come into play helps us better understand fear? For sure. So there's lots to say about um, psychoanalysis. <laughs> much, much more than I say in the book and much more than I'll say here. Um, but the the kind of big picture, again, in the book, I'm really worried about the avoidance of fears, right? I'm worried about how avoiding fears can actually have really dangerous effects. And so in the third chapter, I argue that people displace fears of greater threats. So threats like the threat of suffering, the threat of loss, the threat of um uh, unpredictability, we can displace these fears, which are, are just persistent, great threats. They just will always exist in our lives. We can come to displace them onto things that seem more manageable, right? Threats that we could actually manage and maybe like get away, get away from, um, when those great threats are too difficult to cope with. So, you know, people who know Freud 
know that displacement is a big part of his account of psychoanalysis. Um, and, and there's a lot that he wrote early on about, you know, displacement being one of a number of defense mechanisms. He talks a lot about displacement in dreams. He talks about displacement of energy from one thing onto another. Um, without getting too into the weeds on Freud specifically, there's one case that he he gives that a lot of people are familiar with. So I'll mention it here. Um, in his book called Inhibition, Symptoms, and Anxiety, he talks about the case of this five-year-old named Hans, who was living in the early 1900s. Um, Hans had a huge fear of horses, was just terrified of horses, and so was brought to Freud um, to you know, try to diagnose what was going on here. Why was this child so afraid of horses? The story is in fact, way more complicated than this. The relationship that Freud had with Hans's father, et cetera, et cetera. It's extremely complicated. I will not get into all of that. It's very interesting if people want to look it up some other time. But the picture for me that matters is basically Freud comes to the conclusion that the reason that Hans was so afraid of horses was because of a kind of displaced fear um, he feared on Freud's account that his father uh, would be angry at him because he had um, some like sexual feelings and, and fantasies about his mother, Hans's mother. And so Freud's reading again is that Hans's fear of his father actually gets displaced onto this fear of horses. And he gives this, you know, predictably... Um, kind of complicated, highly questionable reading of why Hans, this kid, actually came to fear horses and what horses represent and all this. Now, let me say, you know, as I do in the book, like, it's just covered with caveats. Like, you know, Freud's extremely complicated, been criticized from every angle by analysts themselves, as well as by, you know, certainly by feminist theorists for all of the kind of like uh, misogyny and sexism and, um phallocentrism and all of this. So like, I'm not taking for granted Freud's reading at all of the Hans case, or in fact, any case, but what's useful about it and what other sort of theorists of psychoanalysis have clarified after Freud is that this account of displacement does seem to function in some ways in our psychic lives. So the idea of there being a feeling that is too hard to manage um, in its own right Right. So in the Hans case, that's the fear of his father, the fear of one of his caregivers wanting to harm him, that being too difficult to manage such that the person displaces that fear onto something else that is more manageable. Right. So in the Hans case, he displaces that fear onto horses, which are more easy to avoid than a father who wants to harm you. Right. I mean, it's also horses are not that easy to avoid for Hans. It turns out he lives right across from the stable. And so therefore he doesn't want to leave his house ever. But the point stands that, you know, we try to displace these fears or other feelings onto things that are more manageable. Okay. All this to say, what I think is interesting here is I, I think that we do do this. I, I argue that we do displace great fears against fears of the, of loss of loved ones, fears of suffering, um, fears of the unpredictability of the world onto more everyday perceived threats. And I don't think we always do this, but I think it is a pretty common part of our um, emotional lives where we try to displace our fear of these great threats onto more manageable, tangible, you know, more minor threats, and then go about trying to control those threats. 
Um, so one of the examples I give in the book is of displacing fear um, of unpredictable, you know, economic landscapes, as many of us in the U.S., you know, ha have this fear, like what's happening with our economy? Can I rely on it to make sure that I'm going to have a job and feed my family forever? We displace this kind of great, great threat fear onto um, smaller threats like migrants um, and come to see, you know, these migrants coming and taking our jobs, you know, that's the threat and we should try to control it. Now, when I say we, of course, I don't mean everyone. Um, I myself am a migrant. I don't share this fear. But just to say, you know, that that um, that mode of displacement of a great threat onto more manageable threats is, I think, pretty common. So then, like you said, the last thing I'll say is I, I tried to change in the chapter the account of displacement to something a bit more relational or a lot more relational. Because on Freud's account, it's very much about the individual doing this displacement. It's like within them as an individual. And I'm much more interested in the ways that we together, we as social groups, we as communities, we as families, we as you know kin, kin groups, displace together and come to, like in the migrant case, that's no one individual in the U.S. is coming to see migrants as a threat. That's something that happens very much relationally. Um, so I try to add that, you know, others are intentionally or unintentionally guiding our attention to, you know, a fear of certain kinds of proxy threats, um, and, and thereby playing a really significant role in where our fears land. Amazing. Um, thank you. Uh, and I, yeah, I really enjoyed, um, reading all your analysis of, um, Dis displacement to proxies as someone who doesn't think about this all the time every day it just like made a lot of things click in my head um and so then you also discuss controlling strategies that are used to manage perceived threats how does your analysis of these controlling strategies um combined with the other things you've talked about so far bring you to the conclusions that you make about the moral unacceptability of controlling strategies. Right. So this is the the part of the book that, you know, um, is just like a ton of examples um, of me trying to work out how, what happens basically after we've displaced these great threats onto these more manageable proxy threats. So I give a bunch of examples of ways that we then try to control those proxy threats as, um, you know, as a mode of trying to regain some control um, and not be burdened by these great threats anymore. And so the basic idea is, again, that I think that we try to avoid our fears of great threats by um, coming to fear more manageable proxy threats, and then we try to control those proxy threats. So I give five uh, controlling strategies that I think we often employ against proxy threats. And when I've talked about this with folks, often they will suggest a sixth, a seventh, an eighth kind of controlling strategy. So I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but I do think that there are these five common strategies. So the first that I talk about is removal. So in some cases, we once we've displaced those great those fears of great threats onto more manageable proxy threats, we might try to remove them. Um, so one example of this that I give are, is hostile architecture, right? So things like um, spikes on benches, um, spikes on heater, you know, sewer grates so that people can't rest there and get heat from being there. 
spikes for non-human animals on, you know, along the sides of roofs or gutters where we don't want birds to sit. And there's any number of hostile architecture all the way from those kinds of things up to, of course, like border walls are also examples of hostile architecture. Um, And I also give the example of pocket parks, which um, people may have heard of. It's, you know, often in dense urban areas, there'll be these tiny bits of land and sometimes communities band together to make what are called pocket parks, which are like tiny little parks. Often they're it's like fake grass, one slide, right? But it's it's just big enough for like kids to play a little bit or you to take your dog to go have a pee or whatever. So the thing that's interesting about pocket parks is that there's been a real move to um, build pocket parks in spaces that will thereby function as, you know, creating a kind of like radius where um, people on the sex offender registry are not allowed to live because there's a park in an area, kids might be in that park, that that can be used by people in urban spaces to create a big area where kids, where people on the sex offender registry aren't allowed to have, say, supported housing. There's a philosopher named Sarah Tyson, who's a really wonderful piece on this, um, all about, you know, these pocket parks and the use of them against um, people on the sex offender registry. So again, removal is one kind of strategy, right? We could try to remove the proxy threats. We can create border walls. We can create benches with spikes. We can create pocket parks. That'll get unhoused people or people on the sex offender registry out of our neighborhoods. That's one kind of strategy. Another controlling strategy I talk about is escape. So if we can't remove a threat from our area, maybe we try to escape it. And so one example I give here is of gated communities, um, which are often an attempt anyway to escape from the perceived threats of some kind of outsider, right? Where that outsider is often members of racialized groups. Um, And so you'll have these gated communities that are built to, you know, as a kind of mode of escape where this is a, a presumed um, safe space for the people to live in the gate communities. Seth Lowe has a really wonderful analysis of these gated communities. It turns out people don't actually feel safer in them. Um, the people who thought that they would feel safer very often don't. And of course, then they just come to see the members of racialized, racialized groups who come into them as the threat. So things like um, house cleaners, babysitters, landscape workers, coming into the gated communities, the people who live there very often continue to to feel threatened by these um, so-called outsiders. But escape is another mode of controlling strategy. The third that I talk about is destruction. Um, So destruction, you know, if we can't remove something, if we can't escape it, why not try to destroy it, right? Even better, fully, fully destroy it. Um, And so the example I give here is of solitary confinement practices in prisons, which um, obviously, the death penalty is the the sort of like ultimate form of destruction, but solitary confinement um, is much more widely usable and has very similar destructive effects. Right? There's lots of empirical work on just how much solitary confinement destroys um, incarcerated people's sense of themselves, even their capacities for perceiving the world. Lisa Gunther has a really beautiful book on uh, solitary confinement where she talks about this. So I use that example for destruction. The fourth of the removal strategies I talk about is assimilation. So I give examples of uh, residential schools for indigenous people um, and conversion therapy for queer people as attempts to assimilate the perceived threats, right? Of these indigenous or queer communities. 
And then finally, uh, the, the fifth controlling strategy I talk about is overpowering. And this is a little trickier um, to, to get one's head around, or at least I found it so, but the basic idea is like, we, if we can't remove, escape, destroy, or assimilate, maybe we try to more subtly overpower something um, to co-opt something for our own purposes, or to just subtly communicate that like, this is not welcome here. Um, And so I give the example of, for example, um, preventing one's child from expressing gender fluidity. So maybe your kid comes to you and is saying, you know, um, you know, I've been gendered as a boy, but I really want to wear dresses. I want to wear sparkly hair clips. I want to play with dolls. I want to go to the girls' birthday parties. And a parent, for whatever reason, tries to overpower that by saying, no, no, like this is what boys do. We'll, we'll keep having you within that gender binary. So this is one sort of more subtle way that you might try to overpower the perceived threat of people existing outside the gender binary. Um, and so then the the piece that you're talking about, the moral acceptability or moral unacceptability, I try to make the case for why it is not going to be morally acceptable to use these controlling strategies against non-threats, right? So perceived threats, which aren't actually threats. All the examples I've talked about above, right? Sec- those on sex offender registries, prisoners, all of this, um, indigenous people, queer people, all of these things are are non-threats, right? That these controlling strategies are morally unacceptable to use toward. Um, so I think that's, to me, that is a quite clear argument. It's like, you're not allowed to do these controlling strategies against things that weren't even threats to begin with. The trickier argument is why can't we use controlling strategies against actual threats? And this is a a point that's been brought to me a number of times, right? If something's an actual threat, why shouldn't we use a controlling strategy against it? And here I do go into some depth about why it's complicated. I think the to really boil it down that in some cases it, it it might be morally acceptable to use controlling strategies against actual threats. So I give the example of imagine a sexist uncle at a holiday family party saying unacceptable things about the women at that party, right? Like you should get up and do the cleaning or like do your job and get in the kitchen, that kind of stuff. Can we use a controlling strategy against this guy? Yes. I think we probably can, (laughs) but, um, I think that we should really take seriously the knowledge and the, the the awareness that controlling strategies aren't always the best or only ways to manage threats. And I think even actual threats, I think we need to think very carefully about what what the best mode is to relate to actual threats. So I think it comes down to needing to get really clear on the potential harmful effects of controlling strategies and whether or how much they might actually help us. And on my view, it might be less than we think. That is such a clear and helpful breakdown. Um, Thank you. So then ultimately, you conclude in this book that we need to fear differently. And what do you suggest that could look like? How can we fear together? Yes. So I left this question for, or this chapter for last, obviously, because it's the trickiest, hardest chapter. Um, And I I don't think that I've answered it completely in the book. Um, I'm very interested in thinking about other ways to fear better. And I think if there's one point that I try to get across, it's that, as I've said, our priority should not be preventing fears themselves, right? But preventing the actual dangerous actions that can come from them. 
So in this last chapter, I talk about um, three approaches that could support us in becoming better fearers. I talk somewhat about the mindfulness literature, um, which again is, you know, huge and there are various perspectives within it and various criticisms of it. Um, but I, I talk about some mo or some sort of like uh, strategies from that literature that might help people accept the fears that we have um, and come to sit with them without acting on the basis of them. I also draw on the somatic uh, somatics literature. Um, there's a very famous book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, who is also widely criticized um, for other reasons about, you know, relationships and ways that he structured his workplace. So, but this book is, has been taken up long beyond him um, and by other people. And so it's work on trauma and how to relate better to trauma. Um, and then I also talk about politicized somatics. Um, and there's a, a number of people who are doing really important, interesting work within social movement spaces based on somatics practices of coming to think about intergenerational harm, intergenerational trauma. And so what I try to get from all of these approaches is basically like, what do we actually do when we fear something and we know that we don't want to act on the basis of that fear, um, but we're still motivated to act on the basis of that fear. Um, and so I try to use these approaches to say, you know, there are things that we can do beyond just perceiving a threat and acting like it's an actual threat. And I think a lot of it comes down to the relationships that we build um, to hold these fears together, right? I think it I think being able to express fears to people that we trust um, and have them hold them with us, but also challenge us when we're trying to act on the basis of them um, in ways we shouldn't. I think that the, that all is really crucial, really difficult work. And I think that it, you know, is obviously going to be better supported the more we have healthcare, mental health care, education, you know, workplace systems that support us in actually um, having the feelings without acting on them. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, I, I really appreciated this, this conversation and I'm excited for folks to hear uh, all the ideas you've put forward in this book. Once again, my name is Jen Hoyer and today I've been speaking with Amy Harbin, author of Fearing Together. Thank you for listening to New Books Network. Thank you so much.